Hey, this episode is brought to you in part by HLB Lighting Design, Signature Doors and Windows, and Modern Denver Magazine. Now, on to the show. If a client asks you very early, like, how do you charge? You know that they're making their decision based on your fee. And they're typically the client to avoid. You can't do great work uh, when you're pressured for fee or time. Um, it just won't happen. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. It's so funny when you do reactions to me, but just with your eyes when we're in front of the microphone. <laughs> like just say, say what you're thinking. I didn't know you were recording. No. <laughs> Hi. Good evening. Welcome to Architecting. I'm here with the host, Adam Wagner. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Now, today, you know, I, again, you're just going to make fun of me because I'm going to say we, we have a really good guest on, but this is somebody that I've really been looking forward to talking to for a long time and uh, reached out to him pretty early on in the podcast and never heard back and, and sort of felt bummed about it. And then it, it turned out I had the wrong email. So it wasn't <laughs> his fault at all. I mean, it was my fault. Uh, so yeah, we have Scott Lindenau from Studio B Architects. Nice. Yeah, I think I think to me, you know, Studio B really represents this like really pure, clean, simple architecture and a real reduction down to its simplest sort of essence. And it always seemed like to me like Scott had these had these beliefs and and came to Colorado and just pushed really hard for it and didn't compromise on on the type of architecture that he wanted to create and and you'll hear in the interview he it seems like they're doing very well and and really able to have uh the type of clients and type of projects that that they're after and it and you'll you'll hear i i feel encouraged by that mm. by that idea of of pushing towards what you believe in and that it you'll come out on the other side and it'll it'll work out <laughs> nice i'm looking forward to this one yeah i mean and, and and it's it's really interesting you know he he's a he's a he's a deep guy uh thinks thinks deeply and 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 travel is actually really important to his life and and discovering and and being in different locations and you can see that even on like our instagram page where uh, after the interview, I said, okay, Hey, I'm going to post some images of your work. I can easily pull it off of your website, but let me know if there's something else. And he, and he wrote back and said, actually, anybody can go Google my, my work and you can see that, but I just want to post pictures from my travel. And that's the thing that's, that's, that's meaningful to him and that he wants to share. And so go check out those images. And I, I think it really does say something about who he is and, and, and also then how it translates into what, what he's, what he and the, in the firm of talented people are creating. So nice. Yeah. Enjoy. Oh, and also, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, this is the beginning of November in 2023, make sure to come out to the, uh, AIA Colorado design conference next week. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the big party where the whole state is able to get together. And, uh, I think we'll have some good speakers and they, they're setting up a little, uh, podcast booth for me. And, uh, we're going to be doing some, some live interviews of, of the keynote speakers and whoever else shows up. So 
come over and and uh say hi and and hang out it's gonna be fun yeah see you there but first here's a few messages from our sponsors today's episode is sponsored by hlb lighting design and we have one of their principals greg mackle here greg tell us a little bit more about hlb and about yourself all right thanks adam I am a principal with HLB Lighting Design, as Adam mentioned, and we are the largest independent lighting design firm in the United States, and we have seven offices, but I really focus on my passion, which is high-end residential lighting design. And Adam, we really wanted to sponsor an episode after seeing that uh, we were so lucky to have been part of the teams of, of so many people that were on your your podcast and we really like to create environments where your eyes are not drawn to our work but our work really enhances the interiors the architecture the artwork of a space and really truly creates a comfortable environment that homeowners really enjoy it's comfortable to be in the space and we do take projects really from conceptual design all the way through the aiming of the last light at the end of the project yeah lighting is so important for for a project and and bad lighting is super visible and and good lighting can can just really enhance the the design of the space i know from from working with you guys just your attention to detail and your your diligence and and just that that real scientific approach that that helps us bring these spaces to life and and light them well is 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 invaluable how can people get a hold of you Thanks, Adam. Best way to reach me is either through our website, hlblighting.com, or you can email me directly at gmackle at hlblighting.com. Great. Yeah. Check them out. Thanks, Greg. All right. Thanks, Adam. And now back to the show. Man, it's it's good to finally meet you. I feel like you're like a white whale here for me. I, I, I've been wanting to connect with you for a while, and now to here it is. All Thanks right. for joining. Where are you at today? Uh, today's been a, an excellent day. We've had two uh, quite special interviews, uh, and we had one yesterday. So we're in that wonderful position to be uh, highly selective about who and what we commit to, which isn't always the case, but it's becoming more and more the case for us. Uh, having a 30-year history. I was going to say, you know, I I just kind of assumed that that's, that's how you guys live all the time. You just get the cream of the cream and just uh, get to turn down whatever you want. But It has been pretty much the case. And, you know, I feel so fortunate to be living a creative life and to pay, be paid to have an idea. So I don't think a lot of people can say that. And I've held true to the convictions I, I established while at Rhode Island School of Design. And I've maintained the rigor to that conviction, and I think it's paid off now over time. And clients come to us for what we do, and uh, they often don't even interview anyone else. So we feel very, very lucky. Good. You know, I pretty much just set up this whole podcast just to uh, gleam from all you guys that that have these answers. So that's what I'm excited to figure out is how, how you got there. Let's start from the beginning. Let's um, let's start with this question of of who are you? How would you answer that? I've always been highly uh, curious, ambitious. I've never really settled for less. And I, I think that I've always believed in myself. So I've usually achieved what I've set my mind to do. 
grew up in a, you know, in the Midwest in Madison, Wisconsin, and mm. grew up in the swim team and, you know, self-sufficient from an early age. And I was always just very motivated. And it took me a while to find my direction uh, in the profession because my undergrad degree from UW-Madison was in zoology. Mm. I was fairly certain I was becoming going to become a doctor, applied to applied to med schools, took the MCATs, did all that. And I, I wanted to reconsider what I was doing. So then I took two years off, taught skiing in Jackson Hole hmm. and uh, decided, well, you know, creativity is something that was important. And then I, I originally applied to, to RISD in furniture design. And I, I first landed there in that, in that program and realized I didn't want to become a craftsman. Hmm. So I wanted to be more of an ideas person. I transferred to architecture and it's all worked out. But so, so starting back with that, that idea of the, the sort of ambition and working hard. And did you come from a family who had been in Wisconsin for a long time and kind of background of farmers and that kind of thing? Or like, what, what was your parents and family life like? No, quite, quite the opposite. Um, my father was a utility executive, um, huh. large power company. And my mom, you know, raised the three of us. And that was more traditional, you know, home, home life back then. But I think that, you know, from an early age, my father taught us, you know, the, the ethics of, you know, hard work pays off and he's setting goals for yourself and realizing those. You know, we all started working as, as young kids. You know, I, I've always been an entrepreneur as well. You know, I had my own lawn mowing, you know, company. I, I sold uh, hot chocolate at UW football games. I cut people's grass and shoveled snow. My brother and I in high school started a a painting company. We see, we started painting all these people's houses. We had nine employees. So from an early age, I learned that if I worked and saved, I could get things that I would, would want to get. So I think that was good. And and then as I was going through my undergrad career, I really never felt passionate about the sciences and math, even though I was good at those things, but it wasn't really what inspired me. And when I finally landed at in Rhode Island, it, I was surrounded by just creative people, you know, and all sorts of the fine arts and very inspired by all that. Yeah. When did you go there? What I was there from 83 to 86. Okay. Yeah. Being originally from the Midwest, I used to go to the West skiing all the time, but it was my first foray into really spending time back East. So while I was at RISD, you know, I went up to Montreal, Quebec City, you know, Nova Scotia, New York, Boston, Philly, and I really got a, a taste of the East Coast. And I'm thrilled that I was able to be educated back there, but I knew I would never want to live there. It wasn't the climate or the lifestyle for me. And I always, you know, wanted to go back to the mountains. Yeah. Cause I, let me see. I, I've, I've interviewed a few people who went to RISD. I think uh, Stephen Dinia was there, but like I had this real, not nostalgia, but uh, this idealized version of, of RISD and like, what, what was that? Like kind of the, late 70s maybe like is that when the the talking heads were coming out of there and like just this super creative scene i mean is that what drew you to to RISD? like how how did you choose that and did you have that kind of image there well you know when i decided that architecture and design could be you know um, direction for me along with furniture i started looking at programs around the country that you know had that and um i actually made a pilgrimage back east and went to several schools, uh, Princeton, UVA, RISD. I went and looked at Rice University. Mm -hmm. 
Harvard, Princeton. And, you know, it was, I got a feel for RISD that, you know, this hotbed, uh, plus it was next to Brown University. So I, I took a lot, a lot of courses there too. Hmm. Uh, There's a reciprocity between the two schools. Um, but, you know, I just, you know, I went from a school of 45,000 at Wisconsin to RISD at that time was 1,750 students. So hmm. a small, intimate school. Some of the departments, like textiles, had 10 people in them. Wow. I used to wander through the various studios to seeing what people were making. And uh, I just love that energy, the passion of creating. And again, feel really lucky that I was able to go. It's the oldest design school in the country, founded hmm. in 1877. Really? Uh, very, very, you know, difficult to get in. And I, I got in as an older student, so to speak. I went there when I was 27 because I had previous degree and I traveled quite a bit. Traveling, we'll talk about that later probably, uh, uh, continues to inspire and inform me in, in how we do things. But um, I think they saw me as a focused student at, at 27. Most of the kids applying there were 19 to 20. Um, and, I, you know, I really loved it there. So what what was kind of going on at the school at that time? Who was who was kind of there and, and the the sort of ideas that were floating around that really stuck with you? Well, the uh, as you know, any college or any you know, architecture program is 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 really led by the department chair. And when when I was at RISD, it was a special time because uh, Rodolfo Machado um, mm-hmm. uh, and Jorge Silvetti were uh, paper architects at that time, were theoreticians and you know, kind of poetic architects. They hadn't built anything. And hmm. Rodolfo was the head of RISD and Jorge, his partner, was the head of the GSD at Harvard. Uh, so, you know, they they attracted a, a really highly talented, you know, crew of, of critics, mentors, uh, tormentors in some cases. Hmm. And um, it was, you know, really a truly exciting time to be there. And RISD also, I think it, it still is, I think almost 50% of the students there are from abroad. A very diverse, um, you know, student population, which was somewhat new for me in an exciting way. So there are people from all over the world in my program. And I think we started with 83 kids in the architecture program and we graduated 55. But Mm -hmm. I was able to dabble in many of the other departments when I was there. But I was inspired by a lot of the other students in other departments. The competition I received fierce uh, because it's a private school. Uh, the education is quite different. You know, after your first year there, uh, you meet with the department head, your your advisor, and, you know, quite often the, the grad student, you know, mentor. And they either say, we want you to continue in the program or, you know, we we really strongly advise you to, to switch majors. You're not going to make it. Hmm. And that's something, you know, when I've been uh, a visiting lecturer or critic in other programs, I talked about, you know, in some of the public schools where, where they don't have that policy. I mean, and I think RISD feels that they want their graduates to have no problem getting work. Um, they want to come out of school with very strong portfolios. And it's, it's typically true. I, I see a lot of portfolios that come my, over my desk. And the better schools usually have the better students and better portfolios and often the better faculty. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a... It can be a tough thing sometimes of of like CU for instance, right? There's no uh, there's no gateway to get in. Anybody can get in, and uh, sometimes you get surprised by a student who you know might not have had the background or the experience to get in, but then excel once they get into the environment. Uh, but then a lot of students are just kind of barely make it make it through, right? But 
dig it through. Uh, it's an interesting, yeah, dichotomy. Well, you know, talent can come from anywhere. And um, to me, you know, ambition, motivation, goal setting, and drive, it's either within you or it's not. And, you know, mm. it's all about initiative that you take. And I think optimism, I'm internal optimism, believing yourself and the convictions you make in life. I've been keeping journals since I was a child. Hmm. I have crates of them, you know, both kind of professional and, and life goals, as well as just more of a, a journaling. And I find that when I write down, you know, goals and, and thoughts and, you know, things that are important to me, they usually come true. The more hmm. I put them in front of my, you know, pen to paper and, you know, brain to hand, they they seem to resonate in the forefront of how I make decisions about things along the way. And that's just something that you did. Did your parents kind of say, "Hey, here's a blank journal, like do it," or that was just something always inside of you of kind of documenting and then projecting? Well, I think it started, you know, when I was uh, in my late teens when I started traveling the globe. I just started keeping records of, of the adventures and you know what I was thinking and experiencing at the time and just recording, you know, uh, my experiences and in some degree, the history has been a huge part of my life. Like photography is as well. Chasing light and really capturing light and shadow is, is part of it as long as architecture is too. And how light plays into our world and our mindset and in our, our attitude. But yeah, journaling is, is uh, you know, I do it almost daily. Um, mm. You get up in the morning, make an espresso, and, and that's what I do before I get to work, usually around eight and it is powerful. Like yeah, that was a uh, kind of New Year's resolution thing that I started this year, and it's actually still continued. You know, it's not every day, but but that you know, look back and say, okay, what did I do, and what what am I projecting forward? It's a good practice. I, you're inspiring me to get better here. But um, but talking about architecture, I mean, I was going to say, you know, doing your undergrad and growing up in Madison, and then, you know, going to grad school for furniture making originally, you know, was, was architecture a, a big sort of influencer in your life growing up or like something you, you realized or, or was it sort of part of that travel maybe, you know, that stimulated it? Well, I think there's a couple of things that really kind of got me intrigued by architecture, you know. A lot of people I talked to who are architects knew when they were young, they wanted to be an architect. They, they sketched houses. They, they played with building blocks. I didn't really do much of that. You know, I really kind of found architecture late um, when I was at RISD. Um, and when I was living in Jackson Hole, actually, I was dating a woman mm -hmm. whose father was an architect. And I'd go to a studio and uh, I'd kind of see the models and I kind of got, you know, intrigued by that. And then when I was at RISD, you know, you know, when I realized I didn't want to become a craftsman building a rocking chair once a year, I'd go up to the the architecture, you know, level and see, you know, the models. And, you know, the, at that time, it was all, you know, sketching, and I, what I, which I still do. But I just saw that, you know, creating actually structures and program and seemed to be more of what I was, you know, more interested in. Um, and then when I made the transfer into that department, uh, it kind of all fell into place. But you know, I was there from the age of 27 to 30. So I graduated at the age of 30. It felt good. So let's talk about those travels. So, yeah, it seems like a central part of your life. Did it start pretty early, you're saying? And and kind of where where did you go and what impacted yeah. you? Well, as I, as I mentioned, my father um, 
his parents uh, were from Denmark okay. and my others were originally from Sweden. So when we were children, we used to travel every year and we'd do three-week road trips either across the United States. With One year we went to Maine to Savannah. Another year we went from San Diego to Vancouver. Another year we drove across the Deep South. So we did some really interesting you know, trips as a family. Hmm. And then we also went to, you know, Scandinavia and Northern Europe a few times as well for, you know, extended trips. And I think that that kind of got me interested in travel. My first big trip, you know, solo was in 1977. I went at the age of 21 down to Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, many months. In hindsight, at that age, you know, I was pretty young to be doing it, doing that then. But, you know, I would say every year since then, I've been taking, you know, major trips and often in the last 15 years, two of these trips a year uh, for at least three weeks at a time. And the more remote, the better for me. My wife and I enjoy experiencing indigenous cultures, rituals that most people will never see. Uh, I like, I don't mind not showering for two, three weeks, uh, all that kind of thing. But it really teaches you about what's important, the simple things in life, that nature is truly a refuge and sanctuary for all of us. You know, we all get so caught up in our busy lives uh, where we're connected at all times that this is an opportunity to really escape all of that and and really consider what's important in life. And, you know, as you know, there's chapters in life, you know, from free children to having families and children. And, and, you know, and we have two boys. And once they left the house, we realized that, you know, we had time again. Hmm. So at this stage of career, which is exceptional right now, we're, we're, we're thrilled with the work we have and the clients we're attracting. But, you know, I, I don't want to just work my life away. There's other things I do enjoy doing and other passions I, I want to continue to explore, painting, drawing, sketching, photography, uh, many other things. Yeah. I, I loved going to grad school. You know, it's like that moment to, to kind of pause and to put a lot of thoughts and, and, and things into kind of like constructed form and into architecture. Did you have a sort of thesis or kind of final project that, that you were able to kind of take some of those ideas that were starting to form up and the travels and, and put them in something at the end of RISD? The final thesis at RISD is interesting because uh, the first semester of your last year, you actually create your thesis and, you know, you have to do the research and produce a book about what is the thesis, you know? Um, and then the second semester was actually executing that thesis into, into a design. My thesis was based on voyeurism and hedonism. Mm. Oh, well-being and, and, you know, the lifestyle of staying fit and things, you know, where we're kind of, you know, coming to the forefront of people's lives. And, you know, I hearken back to the, the Roman area with, you know, tepidarians and you know, the mm. hot, just the cold plunges and, you know, and, you know, all this stuff. And it was about transparency. And it was, you know, in downtown Providence, which was when I was there, was in a state of transformation from this gritty blue collared town to what's now a, kind of a renaissance city, you know, between Boston and New York. But, you know, it was well received. It was really about, you know, um, you know, life and, and, and social, you know, applications. But and back then we do everything by hand, you know, we didn't have computers and you know, there's a, a kind of a, a thing at RISD, which where, where all the, the young students helped the thesis students build mm. models 
uh, help hang the presentation. And uh, I think there was 300 people at my review because, um, you know, we had, you know, uh, critics from Harvard and MIT come down and who are friends of Machado Savetti and critique the work. But it was a high powered affair. And um, fortunately, mine was well received. Uh, other friends of mine, you know, were, were crushed. <laughs> that um, I think it's it's something we all kind of experience some at some point in school that you know either we changed schemes at the last minute or we we weren't prepared. But I only pulled all, one all nighter when I was at school, and that was the last one. I, and I said I won't do that again. That's that's impressive. Have you? It's a little off, not off topic, but have you? Um, like I, I just that feeling of being in those final reviews and when you have that big jury around you and it's just like playing sports, right? It's like playing in the championship or something. And like, have you been able to recreate that in, in architecture? I mean, I hope you have, I guess. I, I don't know if I have, but. Well, one of the things, you know, architecture does is it allows you to present ideas and, you know, if they're well-conceived, well-thought-through and you've got the drawings and, you know, the uh, the documentation to back up your thinking, you know, even if it, they don't like the design, at least it's been thought through. Right. That is really good. And the thing that was great about RISD, it was really, it's still a very theoretical school. They, they really want you to learn how to approach idea, concept, and what's the rigor behind supporting it and how are ideas made They'll let you figure it out, you know, wall sections and details and specifications as you enter your practice uh, period of life. Um, so it's all about, you know, concept. But, you know, to recreate the thesis review, I mean, we we do have some very high-powered clients uh, at this stage of the game. Um, and we're starting to work in many other states as well, which is exciting for us to work in for different landscapes and contexts. But, you know, essentially, often making your first presentation to a you know, a very high profile client is very much like, like that. So I think, you know, architecture school prepares you for those moments if you've done the work. So mm -hmm. I think that was good preparation for, for life. Yeah. So, so you get through that, you're, you're 30, you're, you're shot out into this, into the world with ideas of voyeurism and hedonism in your, in your brain. What's next? Where do you land? That took me to Aspen, of course. Oh, yeah. And there you go. Yeah, but we, my route to Aspen was a little bit, you know, um, you know, circuitous. It wasn't entire, it wasn't really planned. I mean, I remember when I graduated, I had several offers in, in the cities back east. But while I was at RISD, I, I did work for Machado Savetti a summer. I worked for another firm, McNally, Bruce McNally on uh, hmm. Mark's Vineyard. I worked there a summer and, and, you know, tried living in the ocean, see what that was about. I uh, spent time in Newport, Rhode Island, um, when America's Cup was there. So I, I got a taste of kind of that that the sea life and, and living on the eastern seaboard. And you know, it wasn't really my thing. And I, I kept thinking about you know the landscapes of the West and you know the great climate. So I got in my my VW van and kind of traveled down the South and cut across through you know Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And I stopped along the way uh, with some RISD alumni that I looked up, you know, in various places that were on that route, a couple in New Mexico. And then I came up to Aspen uh, and it was kind of by, by chance. And uh, I was, was having lunch here at the Red Onion, which is still here. And um, I was talking and uh, another architect who's still here asked me, you know, what I was doing. And he said, do you have your portfolio? And I said, yes. 
Uh, so I went to my car, got it out and showed it to him. And he, he said, when can you start? <laughs> who, who was it? That was uh, Charles Cunniff. Oh, really? And is that, he, you just ran into him at the restaurant? I just ran into him. Really? So I, I worked there for three months huh. um, and uh, realized that, you know, where where his work was going and where, where, where I was thinking I wanted to go weren't the same. So um, and then I started applying uh, at various national firms, Gary's office, Morphosis, and Antoine Predock. Mm. And at that time, you know, this was 1986, I got job offers from all of them. Mm. However, uh, Gary and Morphosis at that time, your first six months, you were really essentially an unpaid intern. And I had student loans. Yeah. And I said, well, I, I can't move to Los Angeles and pay rent and pay student loans back. I have to, I have to be, get, get paid. It was um, ridiculous when you have to argue to get paid to do work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then I, uh, I went down to Albuquerque. Trudock uh, uh, actually called me up and he said, uh, I want you to come down here. So he flew me down. Um, I went to a studio and he, he saw my portfolio and he said, well, I'd like you to come down here and work for me. And he said, pay us $7.50 an hour, but you can't tell other people because they're only making five fifty. dollars <laughs> um, So, I mean, yeah. anyway, so I worked on there for uh, about a year and a half, really got some great experience, met some really wonderful you know, colleagues and friends. I'm still friends with several of them. Um, but Albuquerque wasn't my cup of tea. It really didn't resonate with me. And I headed back up to Aspen after that and worked for a couple of firms as more of a design consultant. And then I started Studio B. I got my license in 91 and then started the firm right after that. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. Let's talk about Predoc. I'm so interested in him. He, he's just like a really seems like a really cool dude, right? I mean, just has this whole kind of aura around him. And and at that time, I mean, he was he was pretty early in kind of computational design and like computer, like getting projects in the computer, right? Like, yeah. I mean, the first uh, you know year I worked for him, we worked on. You know, I was working. I was. He had his office. You know. Um, he had six of us that were all his design team, hmm. and they had a crew of about 25 that were his draftsmen. Uh, and one of his, he never really took on partners, but he had one principal was working closely with, with he and I that was more in the design piece. The other principal was his like technical director who, who could put anything together from a log cabin to a sky rise. Um, hmm. And he was incredible at working drawings and, and, and construction documents. So, but it was fascinating because, you know, at that time, you know, he was probably, I think he's close to 85 now. Um, uh, but back then, I think he was in his early 50s. And 
you know, he was doing some really interesting projects, very inspired by, you know, Native American, you know, sort of rituals, um, the landscapes uh, of the Southwest, which are powerful. The light there is, is very, it's, it's emotional light for me. I still love the landscapes of Utah and Arizona and New Mexico. And I learned how a really good office was, was put together. Um, the thing about Predoc is pretty much his way or no way. And there are firms, you know, that we all know that, that operate that way. Uh, I tend to gravitate more towards firms that are more uh, collaborative and more, you know, horizontal. And that's kind of the way I've structured Studio B where, you know, we, we work, uh, you know, horizontally. The best ideas can come from the interns. Uh, we've let go of egos um, to really produce design excellence. That's really what we're all about, you know, just great work. And you can't do great work without great clients and, you know, really trying to, to select those very carefully uh, people with the same mindset and the patience to go through this the right way is what we look for. And uh, I've always said I'd rather lose staff uh, and let them go than take on projects we don't believe in to keep people busy because a bad client will always be a bad client. Mm -hmm. So speaking of bad clients, so what What was the first client? What was the, uh, I, I love hearing the stories of this sort of like first month of starting a firm. So how, how did that come about? Well, I was, again, incredibly fortunate. Um, so I had worked for, you know, two, three, four firms here in town, uh, you know, after Predoc's office. Uh, uh, many of them wanted me to come on board. I just wasn't ready to commit because I didn't believe in the work they were doing or the mission they had or their, their process or philosophy. And I was dating a woman at the time uh, from Sweden. Hmm. And one of her best friends, who's a ski mechanic, happened to marry uh, or was going to marry a very wealthy girl uh, who really none of us knew was wealthy. So um, we went to their wedding. And afterwards, they came back from their honeymoon. I got a call uh, from them saying, uh, we, we'd like to talk to you about designing your house. <laughs> and uh, and so I, my first commission was... Uh, in a place called Wildcat, you know, outside of, you know, Snowmass mm. and 35 acres and a beautiful piece of property. So, you know, I was able to get this incredible commission right away and allowed me to set up the studio. And um, my first employee was uh, one of my better friends from RISD, whose strength was more technical. My strength is more conceptual and ideas and, you know, and, and people and working with clients and, you know, uh, arriving at ideas. Uh, his name was Chuck Roberts and his, his strength was the technical side of architecture. So uh, he was my first employee. He came out here to Aspen and we worked, uh, he worked with me for two and a half years, you know, putting things together with me um, as we started, you know, the beehive. Yeah. And I think, I think kind of the only thing that is more interesting than your first project is how you get your second projects. I feel like you can kind of fall into a first project sometimes, but like what was the momentum or maybe lack of momentum like for the, after that? During this first project, um, these clients were fairly, they were, you know, connectors and influencers. That was one thing. So they knew a lot of people. So I got to know a lot, know a lot of people through them. And then I also befriended uh, one of the original partners of Design Workshop, um, mm. Don Ensign, who's now passed. But mm. 
uh, he he and I became colleagues and friends, uh, along with several of their 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 founding partners. And then they started, you know, seeing you know my work, and they they started recommending us. Um, so we got you know a couple a couple next projects from from them. So that that's how the the work started. And the first you know five or eight years, we were you know between you know hovering between four and eight people. Uh, and that felt like a good size for me. Um, so that we, we were, you know, charting the course ahead very carefully about what, what jobs. Um, there were times when I was close to leaving Aspen because back then, you know, um, modernism, so to speak, hadn't really, you know, wasn't what people were looking for. They were looking more for thematic architecture, ranches, log timber, farmhouses, that sort of thing. And I kind of drew the line. So, you know, we just don't do that work. Um, it didn't really inspire me. I wasn't you know, excited about it. So um, we got a couple, you know, um, really good projects. My second project was with a woman who uh, was going through a transition in her life. And she let me really kind of take her on a journey to the next level of, of, of rigor and thought. And she, she became a new woman through it. Um, which and we're still very close friends, and she was a huge proponent of us. And between her and her project, I was able to get you know several new clients over the over the years. Yeah, man, I think that's so interesting. Like you, you being able to look back now and and saying you know yeah, first five to to eight years, you know, like there's some ups and downs, and and uh, I started a new firm with a partner that we're almost at two years, you know. And it's like, it's like every month or every week is like, it feels long, right? And you have these ups and downs or project go on pause and you're like, oh man, are we ever going to get another project? You know? And it's like, we've only been around two years, you know, it, it, this, this roller coaster that you have in the kind of stages of the, of the career. And, and I was, you know, I was really curious about that with you guys, especially where it seems, it seems like Colorado I don't know, you know, 20 years ago, something like that, or even 15, 10 years ago, it was hard to get modern work done. And it seemed like, you know, you guys and ARC 11 and like a few of these other ones, you know, trying to really stick to the guns and, and do critical work that they believe in. Uh, I see it as then kind of paving a path for some of the rest of us, you know, did, did it really feel like that? And what sort of stopped you from going away from Aspen and, and, and going away from Colorado? Again, attracting the right clientele is, is critical and essential. And the ability to ask specific questions about learning about these clients before you jump in with both feet is, is really imperative. You know, and these were things I've learned along the way. Um, but I think really staying passionate and, you know, and clients can see passion from somebody and, hmm. You also have to be a great listener. So, you know, staying true to those convictions I established well in Providence have, you know, served me very well. Um, and also, you know, my I think my personality and my ability to communicate and make people feel comfortable uh, is also a, a big plus because, you know, I've seen talented architects who are, um, you know, either extremely introverted or overly egotistical uh, and they rub people the wrong way quite a bit. Or, you know, and I think that there's a real art to attracting great clients, you know, but 
now our portfolio, you know, uh, speaks for itself. And, and as I said early in the conversation, uh, clients come to us for what, what we do. They, by the time they get to us, they, they, they've reviewed our work. They know us really well. They've asked all the right questions. And it's usually a matter of, you know, talking about the process and, and how long all this will take, depending on where that, that project is. And then lastly, they usually ask, you know, a fee question. Usually that's one of the last things they ask, you know, which is, it means the clients are hiring us for the right reasons. If a client asks you very early, like, how do you charge? You know that they're making their decision based on your fee. And they're typically the client to avoid. You can't do great work uh, when you're pressured for fee or time. Um, it just won't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the challenge, right? Um, but then, you know, I, I've seen, I think, somewhere on your, your website or, or in your profile or something, you know, you, you, you talk about, obviously, just making good architecture isn't totally tied to a price tag, right? I mean, you can make archi- good architecture and good design with a smaller budget. Do you believe that? And, and how do you get that to work? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's Frank Lloyd Wright, as you know, I mean, you know, for the longest time he was working for patron clients for much of his career. And then the, the Usonian house started when mm-hmm. he was designing houses for the bricklayer, the, the postman, you know, uh, the car salesman. And, you know, he, he was able to really do great work on, on, on budget. And I think that you know, we've been able to do the same thing, not quite at that scale, of course, but you know, we like to, to elevate, you know, the, the human condition with, with beautiful work. And you don't have to have a large budget to do that. But the talent of a, of a good architect is being able to design accordingly to a budget. You know, we, we all struggle with it, including us. You know, it's easy to design anything when you don't have a budget, uh, which we, we don't really have often. But to design something in a low budget, you have to know what materials to look, what kind of details to, to pursue, what things to show clients, you know, it's easy to, for a client to fall in love with something they can't afford. So being responsible and really being able to understand how to design to a budget, it, it takes experience. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, we see our younger staff come out of school all energized like I was, but they don't have a clue about, you know, designing and, and, and is that even realistic in his client's budget, uh, so it just takes, you know, some trial and error and some really, you know, uh, good mentoring and educating by, you know, senior staff to really be able to teach them about how to design appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so when you, when you, when you design that first project, and I guess maybe to now, let's say, let's say to now, are you, are you able to articulate, you know, what your design philosophy is and what what you believe architecture is? Yes, I can. <laughs> so I just little questions here. Yep. Yeah. So to me, um, architecture is, you know, we, I talk about residential work in particular as a vessel of memory mm. uh, ritual that your work is really about, you know, how you, you know, reflect your daily life and the collection of light. What is the experience in the plan that makes you want to go to a certain space? How does that space feel? We try to pursue that throughout our work uh, and really integrating, you know, um, light in particular into our plans, making it very efficient. But um, it takes a while to have a lot of projects built. 
to really understand exactly how three dimensions work, um, how it affects your you know space. And you know, you just know as an architect or as anyone, when you walk into a very special space, you feel differently. And we try to really think about how we achieve that in our work. Because, um, you know, the older, I, the older I get, the older we practice, you know, restraint is, is kind of a, a word I describe our work with that we're, we're minimalist at heart and modernist. Um, uh, less, you know, as Nice said, less is more. But, you know, a lot of our projects are one material. And, you know, we, we, we often talk about texture with, you know, with the exterior and how that translates to the interior and how we, we take furniture and, you know, and things you touch and feel, millwork and cabinetry into the interiors to support the original concept and idea. Um, we're often inspired by, you know, contemporary artists, a geological, you know, feature on the, on the site, a historical aspect to a property or, or a specific, you know, um, you know, some of our clients have very have very unusual programs, and quite often, or eat or art collections, and those all inspire diagrams. Um, and we, we, you know, we we still sketch and draw a lot early on before we draw anything. Computers kind of come in later. Um, we, we make collages. We make hmm. you know story storybooks uh, about our, our you know the, the early work and how those are those diagrams are influenced either with you know, topography, the geology of materials we find on the property are often inspirations in translating to a material palette down the road. Yeah. What, so what, what's one project that stands out in your mind as, as being really successful in, in, in ticking those boxes? That's built or that we may be working on? No, anything, yeah. Yeah. Well, th- we have a project right now that is, is quite, you know, remarkable. Um it's exciting for us because something that we at, at Studio B have been thinking about for quite some time is, you know, I think our reputation and, you know, our, our work in the, in, in Colorado and the Rocky mountain West, I think, you know, uh, we have a great solid reputation. We've always wanted to work more nationally and which is starting to happen now for us the last couple of years. And, um, you know, to work in different contexts, different environments, different landforms, um, different environs is, is very exciting for us and how we respond to, to these different, you know, um, criteria. So we, we got a call about a year and a half ago from a young couple from, uh, you know, North of Chicago who own a, a, a beautiful piece of property on a large farm that's kind of rolling Hills. Uh, it was glaciated, you know, uh, many, many thousands of years ago. And um, they did national search for architects. Uh, you know, some very, very well-known architects were all considered. Um, uh, and we were able to, we were selected, I think, for the work. I think the fact that I had Midwestern roots, uh, they liked our philosophy and approach to to design. The fact that we were a, a smaller firm of 20 that were more boutique, that we, we'd give a lot of attention. But I think our personalities just really, you know, meshed with these young couple. So, you know, they called me after six months, you know, that they'd done this national search, speaking to over 40 firms, Hmm. and they wanted to work with us. So 
Uh, this is an opportunity for us to really get on the national scene. Uh, the, these clients are very influential, um, and they they've got a, a wonderful site, a wonderful budget, and uh, a program that's that's really exciting. And you know, they they use words like they want a significant work of architecture. Uh, they want you know um, the, the the rigor to the entire project, the furniture, the landscape. On this one, we're working with uh, Conan Partners out of Minneapolis. Shane Conan and his team are a, a nationally working uh, landscape firm, do beautiful work throughout mm. the country. And they're working now in other countries as well, Saudi Arabia, England. Um, so it's an opportunity to work with, you know, with some wonderful collaborators on a project. We're just in schematic design right now, and we presented six different strategies that asked different questions about themselves, the property. Uh, the site, budget, um, lifestyle, um, and it was it was exciting because of the six, they loved four of them, but two of them they they really liked, and they're they're the most bold and innovative strategies we arrived at. So this project will probably, um, you know, I, I would think is going to translate to other work, you know, around the country, which is exciting for us. And we're pursuing, you know, a project that's unlike anything we've ever done. And uh, the, the material palettes inspired by the shagbark hickory trees on mm. this property that are like huge canopied umbrellas in the summer, turning color in the fall and act as sentinels during the winter in the snow. So the material palette looks like it could be wonderful, you know, kind of this, you know, worked board form concrete as an option. Another one could be huge stone chisel panels out of quarries. So it's going to be kind of monolithic in, in this undulating landscape. So it's a cool project. We're hmm. very excited about this. I'll be highly involved in this job. And this is a this is a residence, or it's it's, it's a residence, yeah. but it's a sort of like different different programmatic kind of take on it. You're saying, or it is. You know, we're letting the topography kind of be the architecture in a way. So it almost becomes a land form rather than, you know, almost a, a building. And how we're bl blurring that and blending that into the topography with Conan Partners is going to be very, very cool. So, uh, and then we're also going to be doing all the interiors on it as well the furniture, the furnishings, uh, probably helping them select art. So it's it's an opportunity to kind of create an entire vision. Hmm. Wow! Yeah, looking forward to seeing that. What what about a built work? What's what's a, what's a project that you think really checked a lot of the boxes for you? Really chased um, that light well. Yeah, we've we've got a there's there's a couple that really come to mind. Um, we did a house many years ago that I think really got you know the attention, and that was my personal house in the trailer park here in Aspen. That was. Uh, that kind of put me on more of the, uh, the architectural map. Hmm. Uh, it's 25 years old now. It was called Trailer House. And uh, at the time, you know, I moved to Aspen. I was living in, you know, a mobile home park in Aspen. And, you know, normally there's somebody who owns the land. You pay rent to that person. Well, this person, you know, sold the land to everyone who owned one of these. And, you know, I was the first one to redevelop. We tore the trailer out and I built a home there. Hmm. Uh, and um, it was it's still a very cool project, um, but it, it initiated a, a studio at the GSD. 
It made national news. People were driving up from Denver and Boulder to see this house. Uh, and it, you know, it was actually kind of annoying for a while that people kept wanting tours. But it was, it was, it, it just showed that you know, design mattered to people uh, in good design. And it was in a trailer park, you know, in a lot that was 100 by 30 feet. Uh, and that that kind of got you know, the studio really jump started. That was, I think, my third project. Um, and that really energized, you know, me and, and then the firm. And uh, we started getting more calls after that. Um, what, what, what was the concept? What's the concept of that house? Uh, well, the, the, the concept was, you know, the lot was so tiny and the setbacks were were such that the whole house was 18 feet long and it was 64 mm-hmm. feet long. But that it was essentially you know, kind of a taking the notion of a trailer and, and creating, you know, house you know that would that wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb i didn't want to over design it and overspend it knowing it was in a trailer park but it was you know taking this kind of shoe box and shoehorning it into the site and trying to still have privacy from neighbors which are immediate immediate to you in every direction so i think from a design perspective it was and we had of course shed snow too and you know it was it was a very simple form um i don't it's not on my website anymore but that project was in trying to make tight space with four bedrooms and uh, 2,000 square feet, you know, was a challenge and getting a staircase in there. And we were also limited with the height. It couldn't be above 14 feet. So that means you really couldn't have two floors above grade. So it means you had to go down below and still, you know, get natural light down there and make it livable. Yeah. It's kind of like what you said about it's easy to d- design with, with no budget, but sometimes it's easier to design with a bunch of constraints and, you know, a, a small site where, where it forces you into those solutions that aren't apparent always. And the, the second project, you know, that it's interesting. It's also uh, my personal house here in Aspen. My wife and I, she directs the interiors division of our company, but we found a little house that was built in 68 here in town that had been, you know, um, not abandoned, but it just had been left in a state of disrepair. And we happened to find it. Uh, it was all overgrown. And I knocked at the door, uh, a woman you know, answered. She said, I rent. And I said, well, who owns it? She says, well, three brothers, but none of them live in Colorado. And I called uh, the older brother and said, I'd be interested in buying this house. I, I, I see it has good bones. And, you know, and he said, well, we don't want to work with real, realtors, you know, come back, do the work and come back and make an offer, which I did. And we were able to get it five years ago. Um, if that was today, I, there's no way I could afford to buy it. Um, it's way out of my price range now. But so we just finished a, a total transformation of that house, um, hmm. 2,400 square feet, small house, but it's perfect for us. Um, but it's it's one where my wife and I truly collaborated on this project, the, the whole thing. Um, and it's it's pretty magical. Yeah, let's talk about that. It looked like your wife came to the firm a little bit later after the the creation of it. Yeah, and- she she came into the fold. Uh, well, what was happening is, you know, most architects, anyone who's listened to this, will agree that um, quite often the interior design team comes in after the fact, uh, or the clients can't afford interior design and they move in the grandma's furniture and you know, the, the clarity of the project is very diluted and, you know, it's, it's, it can be very disruptive. And um, 
So I, that was happening to some of our early work. And I think 15 years ago, I, I said, we need to add the interiors piece to, to the, to the team. And, um, I would say four or four or five projects. Now the clients hire us, uh, with a separate agreement to do the full interior design package too. So that made a big difference, but on this particular project, um, you know, we, the house being, you know, close to 50, 60, 60 years old, things started breaking a couple of winters ago and, uh, it was all original. So we, you know, we decided let's go for it. And we, we moved out, got it out and redid it and finished it in eight months. Mm. So did, did you know her before, uh, she, yeah. she came in the firm or yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we were, we were dating and she was working at a, another firm and, uh, and I told her, I said, you know, Susan, you know, we, we need to, we need to jump ship and come over here and lead this, uh, which she did. And now, now she's got a crew of four that work closely with her and realizing the interior work. Yeah. I'm very interested in that. My, my wife's an architect and, and, uh, right out of school, we had a firm together and we were in like 350 square feet, uh, that we lived in and worked in and doing a project together. And, and it was, and we just got married and it was really like marriage and work by fire. And, and, uh, learned a lot about each other and um but you know it's tough to work with your spouse uh and then to be kind of all consumed by design at all at all times and i think by by now we we you know we appreciate it we you know you don't have to talk about try to pretend like uh i care about chemical engineering or something or whatever my spouse might do but it, you know it's all kind of consuming uh how has that worked out uh running a firm together and uh, just living life together? It's a great question. It is, it is remarkable that we, we, we get along very well, both here at the workplace and at, the, and at home. And, but it's true. I mean, you know, design, you know, if you're, if you're passionate about what you do, it, it's all consuming. I mean, um, you know, your creative brain never shuts off. And, you know, we, we do find ourselves, you know, talking and, and discussing work and clients a lot when we're not at, not at the office, um, at home. And, but we, we, we intentionally try to, you know, use at least one day in the weekend to, to go out into nature and find that refuge again and, and forget about, we don't take our cell phones and we get away, but you know, it's, it, it's hard it's, it's, it is all consuming. And, you know, as creatives, we never stop thinking creatively. So whether you're a painter, a dancer, a poet, it's not a nine to five job. Yeah. Has that translated to your children? Are they, are they going into a creative field? Well, we have two boys. Uh, they're, they're both grown now. Uh, one's 29. Uh, he graduated in finance hmm. uh, in San Francisco. The other one's 24. He's a graphic designer, lives in Boulder. Hmm. Uh, but I, I've taken them. They, they, they've been to lots of our projects. Uh, they've seen a lot of the presentations. They, they look at the models and the renderings. And I, I did ask them, you know, when they were in their late teens, you know, any interest in architecture. And they, they both said, you know, we don't want to work that hard. <laughs> uh, you know, I kind of laughed. I said, well, you're probably making a good decision, but because we do tend to work a lot, as you know. I don't want to work as hard and I want to make more money. Okay. Well, yeah. Finance. There you go. Yeah. Let's see. You know, I am, I am really curious about this idea of now you, you, you're talking about um, you have built up this this awesome portfolio and and you're talking about kind of going more national now. 
I was just talking with a group of architects last night about this of of, of sort of it, it's it's kind of strange where there's a lot of good designers, a lot of good work going on, but there isn't necessarily somebody who kind of rises above the state on a national level, you know, like like kind of how Predoc did uh, down there or Rick Joy or something like that. What do you think? Do you agree with that? And what kind of what do you think it takes to transcend that and, you know, go to the next level? Well, the interesting thing about, you know, New Mexico, for example, with Predoc, uh, you know, New Mexico, I, I think the whole population is 2 million um, for mm. the whole state. Uh, I think there's there aren't many firms down there. It's also one of the poorest states. The only outlier there is Santa Fe and a little bit Taos. Uh, Predoc was able to, you know, set up shop there many years ago in a in a place between really Chicago and LA, where there were few architects making a difference and very few doing living down there who were actually doing any of the work. Uh, they were probably coming from you know the Midwest or, or California to do work in the Southwest. Um, but again, I mean, kind of like my philosophy of staying true to your your convictions about great design. Over time, you know, that reputation, we've never advertised, by the way. Hmm. And we, you know, we, we're getting calls, at, you know, weekly now in both studios, which is exciting. But I think staying true to your your convictions and your passion, you know, eventually just translates. And, you know, in, in, in the work, you know, uh, you know, um, Predoc's work is, is, you know, when I was down there, you know, he was at his kind of his height. And, uh, you know, he, you know, of course, he's, he's much older now, but. You know, his work, you know, it was unusual and, and resonated with a certain kind of people. And I think some architects, you know, if you continue to reinvent yourself and adapt to change, you'll continue to do great work. You know, and we all have our, our heroes, you know, who we, we, we look to. And I'm always interested in, in, in you know, there, there are firms like Tadao Ando, Alvar Siza, you know, Peter Zumthor, you know, that their work is very consistent in a certain vocabulary. Others are reinventing themselves in every project. Here's Dr. Moran, OMA, you know, that every project is unique to context, to site, to budget. And, you know, and you can go about either of those strategies with your own work. You know, do we want to develop a, a palette of material where people are hiring us for that kind of work, continue that trend? Like, you know, Studio MK27 is a firm we like a lot out of Brazil that do beautiful work, but all their project is kind of an iteration of the, the previous one, mm-hmm. but they're all beautiful versus each project being unique to itself. We have those discussions at Studio B too about, you know, what is our path? But, you know, we, we distill the, the ideas down to their essence and try to, you know, create the architecture that does that. But I think, you know, we're, we're you know, I agree. I've been in Colorado now a long time and, you know, quite often the best commissions in Colorado seem to be coming from out-of-state firms. And we'd like to be that firm that, you know, changes all that. You know, I think we're we're doing the, the, a very high level of, of work these days um, that's very um, distilled. And I think that, you know, we're going to resonate with certain clients. And I think working nationally is going to allow us to, you know, work in other kinds of projects, or, you know, as time goes on. The first 10 years in practice, we were doing primarily residential work. The second 10 years, we explored doing more civic public municipal projects. Um, But we found that when we started working with taxpayer dollars, um, schools and things like that, 
all the, the great design got diluted and, and the rigor was lost and people were on these boards making decisions about design and, you know, and, and taking things out of our projects. And at the end of the day, we kind of looked at them and said, you know what, it's not our best work. So we're now focused on bespoke customer, you know, residences. Uh, and we were also, you know, very interested in museums, places of worship, uh, cultural buildings where design matters to those people. And they usually have a, you know, a more sophisticated board of directors and people where they really appreciate and value design. Yeah. It's always interesting to th- like think about some, some, uh, a firm like Pachado Savetti or, or Dillis or something, you know, where they, they're in academia for so long and they stick to their guns so hard. And then all of a sudden they explode with these kind of civic projects and things, you know, at a larger scale. And it, it seems like such a, a delicate balance, like you're saying to say, okay, I, I know what I believe in. Uh, I'm just going to put my head down and continue to do good work and, and things will come from it. But then trying to jump that scale up and getting to that point where, where somebody wants you so badly for you, you know, that they trust you to do something that you haven't done, right. Or, or that that's not in your portfolio before. Uh, it seems like a difficult balance. Well, we were able to, when we did, you know, when we secured some of those commissions, you know, uh, you know, we did a winery out in California in Posse mm-hmm. Robles 12 years ago. That's actually a nice project on a budget, you know, we're, that we're quite proud of. That project was secured through a client here that I knew where this client was looking for someone, you know, who could bring a high level design to the table and was willing to kind of do it for a little bit less because, you know, they hadn't done it before. And we, we kind of fit that bill. Um, and then we end up doing the house for that client afterwards. Um but, you know, we did a, a church here in Aspen that, we, you know, we, we like quite a bit. And we, we were able to get that commission because there was someone we knew on the, on the vestry board that really understood architecture in the process of, of getting, you know, a, a great building done. And he was able to convince, you know, his, his board members to take a chance on us. And it, it was a very solid building that we did. I think it was in 2010. The, the Episcopal Church? Yeah. yeah. So it was it a, was it a renovation of a existing? It was, you know, yeah. it, was a, it was it was a strange Quonset hut built in the sixties yeah. that had some additions to it, um, and then we we put a, a significant addition onto it in a lower level, and we, we renovated the whole church, and we I think we increased it by about thirty five percent. And the fascinating thing was, after we we finished the project, they more than doubled their congregation. And we've had a lot of people come up to us and say, you know, the church just feels incredible. And, mm. it, you know, and that, you know, those, those kind of things with communal projects, you know, are wonderful at giving back to place and community. So, you know, so, you know, some of the social fabric projects, you know, really are, are, are good as an architect to get back. Um, and then we've done a series of schools and, uh, you know, we, we were able to get those commissions by, you know, joint venturing and partnering up with another firm that, you know, we're more school experts and we were more the design team and they were more the, the, the experts in school programming and, you know, all that, the technical aspects of designing schools. And those, those played out really well too. Um, and we enjoyed those projects. Um, yeah. Like I, it seems like that the Aspen middle school turned out really well. Uh, it seemed like a good project. 
Yeah, that was a good one. And I think we we, we also really like the, uh, the Aspen Community School down mm-hmm. in Colorado where mm-hmm. selling piece of property. And um, we really enjoyed that one. Yeah. It seemed like just some nice kind of simple moves with, with wood, especially in getting that texture and the light across the facade and then inside as well and, that, and some of those ceilings. Um, yeah. Yeah, we were kind of taking plays off of, you know, agricultural structures and, you know, how old corn cribs and, you know, um, you know, hay, hay lofts were, were, were constructed. Yeah. So, so it's kind of bringing up community, um, you know, you've, you've been in Aspen for a, a long time now. What, how have you seen it change and, and how do you see the, the design community there and kind of your community? that you interact with? Well, the um, Aspen's, you know, evolved. Uh, there's been many chapters since I've been here. Um, when I first moved to town, it, it was more, you know, Wild West, uh, a lot more like grittiness, a lot more, you know, um, bums, ski bums, sleeping in vans and cars. And uh, uh, there's a lot more characters. And, you know, it, it's always had some wealthy people here who liked it as an outpost, that they could be anonymous here, and of course, the, the, you know, I still think the Aspen, Aspen itself, and, and this valley is the most beautiful one in Colorado, along with having all the culture a big city has. I mean, to me, there's not another in mountain town in in Colorado or Utah that that have what we have, and that's why it's so desirable for people to want to be here. Um, it so that's that's one thing, but. So when I first moved here, it was quite a different place. You know, it was, even though it was still expensive then, it was a lot more affordable back then. But uh, I think when 9-11 happened, um, a lot of people in, in, in New York and in cities in particular were kind of wanting to find a place where they could be, you know, it'd be safer. So there was a, a somewhat of a, an exodus here from some big cities. Um, so there was a slight blip on the radar then and change. You know, things started to go up in price a little bit. Aspen's always had a glamour aspect to it, you know, with with stores and restaurants and and, and, the, and the high culture scene. So it started attracting, you know, a lot more uh, people from abroad, you know, Brazilians, Mexicans, uh, wealthy Europeans uh, to come here. Um, and, you know, as you always probably hear, you know, people come here to, to, for, for Christmas and to ski, but but once they experience the summers here in the fall, they it's, it's, it's truly amazing. So, and then, you know, the next big one that's really been a game changer for all of us here has been COVID. Um, uh, the amount of people who've been able to work remotely, uh, all this high tech Silicon Valley people, uh, you know, a lot of our clients now are in their mid thirties um, and they're flocking here for the lifestyle, for the school system, which is exceptional. Uh, the restaurant scene, you know, the, the easy access to hiking, skiing, kayaking, golf, uh, whatever it is. I mean, and, and it's driven up prices significantly where, you know, really most people who work here can't afford to live here. But this isn't you know, just Aspen. It's it's all the resort towns are experiencing the same thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm good friends with a lot of other architects and contractors in, in other valleys and other towns. And we're all having the same problem where, you know, the cost here is so outrageous these days. Um, it's making it really difficult to attract staff 
mm-hmm. even actually move here. Um, they all had to commute. Um, so it, it, it has those challenges, but the, the, the character of the town's changed because we've lost a lot of the, the old characters, the ski bum types. Uh, it's a very, it's a very different culture right now of, of people who are here, but, from a professional perspective, I mean, uh, the, the clients, you know, we're able to get up here are, are pretty special and remarkable people. Yeah. Before, before we jump off here, I, I, I uh, almost forgot, but, uh, studio B, where did it come from? How, what was the story of the name? Uh, good question. I've been asked that many times. It, when I was at, when I was doing my thesis at RISD, I'll never forget. I was, you know, we well worked very hard in architecture school. And I remember looking out of the uh, the architecture building in Providence is an old uh, textile ship ship building that was built in the late 1700s. And the ships just come in, unload their wares in this building. And I was in the top floor doing my thesis project. And I remember saying to myself, um, one day I'm going to be paid for this, to do this. And I, I knew, I knew even then that I would have my own firm. And I said, it's got to be a name that was anonymous, that wasn't just about me. Uh, it was about the people at the studio and the firm. And I just remember, you know, well, Studio B's, Studio A's maybe too obvious. Mm-hmm. So I randomly selected Studio B. Um, so there's not really a good reason for it, but I just wanted it to be about the people here. Yeah, no, that's strong. Especially at that time, right? I mean, essentially every firm was such and such architects, and you know everybody's name, and uh, that was seemed more unique at that time. But, but cool, man. You know, uh, yeah. You know, I moved. I moved here. I think about eight years ago, and and yours was kind of one of the first firms I applied to, and and uh, you 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 got back nicely to me and and kind of went back and forth and unfortunately I didn't didn't get a job there but um, I I get to uh, ride my bike by the uh, the brick city house uh, about every day and just love love that house that you guys did that that courtyard um, and and like I had said before just uh, you know I kind of see you uh, as as helping to pave the way kind of for innovative meaningful architecture in colorado that that the rest of us kind of younger architects get to get to coast better on so uh thanks thanks for the work and thanks for thanks for talking today all right well our pleasure by the way the brick city house i mean uh those are one of those very very special great clients um uh they don't come around often so really embrace it when you get them and they they're continuing to be friends of ours um in fact, they're considering maybe doing another project with us. So uh, we'd be thrilled if that were to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, thanks. Well, Adam, thank you. And sorry, we can do it in person, but I think this worked just as well. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Hi, I'm Eli. This show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza. Emily Child. Fernando Queiroz. Zach Huff. Trevor Notzko. Aaron Best. Kyle Brunner. Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. We're so lucky right now. We've, I mean, 
this week alone, we've had four interviews. It's nuts. And three of these projects are, are awesome. I mean, it's, it's now I have to figure out how, how do we, how are we going to do them? You know, because we, you know, we, you know, I don't want to overcommit and under deliver and, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're booked right now. So we're going to probably have to make some of them wait, um, that they're willing to wait. Um, but you know, it, it's the, the real, the real challenge up here anyway is, you know, you know, you know, employees come up here and they, they love it because our Boulder studio, I mean, people in the Boulder studio, they liked the, they liked the outdoors, but you know, they're also urbanites too. You know, they, they, but the people up here are, are you know, you know, they, they are up here because the work, but also because the, the lifestyle that they're, they're most more active skiers, golfers, kayakers, mountain bikers, they go to Utah a lot like I do. And, they, you know, we're so close to everything, but the reality is it's so expensive that especially younger people like 25 to 30 go, well, how am I going to live here down the road? And if I ever want to get married and have a family, I, it's, I can never do it. So it's a real dilemma for all the mountain towns that, you know, people come and they stay one to three years and they have to leave. And it's tough because, you know, you train people, you put a lot of time into mentorship and education and uh, and you know that they can go down to our Boulder studio. Um, and Boulder's not cheap either. You know, yeah, really. It's not like here, but uh, but you know, it's 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 becoming problematic to, to really find people. But we're doing. You know, uh, we have three employees who completely work remotely. One in New York City, one in Santa Cruz, California, one in L.A. Hmm. Um, but all three of them worked in in our office with us for two three years before they life happened for them. They and they had moved, but. Uh, it's actually working well for us, but the whole flexible workspace and, you know, and you know, working, not working in the office is, is a challenge for everyone, you know, and is, is it the way of the future? Is that the way we all work? And, you know, this is a collaborative profession, you know, it's hard to exchange ideas over a zoom screen and there's various, you know, software that you can do, you know, sketch and things, but it's not the same as sitting around a conference table sketching and what about this? What about that? So, mm-hmm. That's that's something that you know I found that we're we're all adapting to right now too. Yeah, especially when you when you get so used to it and the culture of your firm is built around that. Um, you know, my 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 part my business partner is in Connecticut, so we've and we started during the pandemic, so we've never we've only been remote, and so it, it does make for interesting things. Uh, but we've had to kind of adapt to that, and uh, but uh, yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, do we hit, hit everything with, uh, travel? Do you want to tell any good stories or, uh, well, the, the, the travel thing is, you know, it's, it's, it's really a critical part of who I am. And, um, you know, and we don't go to, you know, your, your typical places. I mean, our last big trip was, uh, Chad. Mm. Most people don't even know what Chad is or where it is. Um, but you know, Africa, you know, I've been to Africa over 20 times and, Uh, Africa is 54 countries with seven of them being larger than the state of Alaska. So it kind of puts, puts things in a, a scale perspective. Um, and, you know, and there, you know, the Africa, you know, the, the rituals, the landscapes, the light drumming, you know, dance. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole nother world over there. And, you know, you can travel to Europe, you can travel to Mexico and, you know, it's kind of civilized, but, you know, you go to, you know, 
weird Indonesia in Africa, it's, it's a whole different way of travel and seeing. Uh, and, you know, I, I think about it all the time. And, you know, I, I love being in these remote landscapes, right? I have to think about being on Zoom calls, making decisions and, you know, dealing with people and clients. And um, you know, I, I'm truly getting up and trying to maximize my experiences when I'm in these locations to really take it all in and write about it, you know, my journals. So I'm, I'm fascinated by how other people live around the world. It's just, and we realize how lucky we are. I mean, uh, the average African makes a dollar a day, 300 bucks a year. Um, for them to even think about trying to get on a plane and come to the States, it would take them 15 years to save the money for a plane ticket. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Uh, you know, it, it really, we're just very, very lucky people. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. But I've been to uh, uh, Gabon and to Liberia. Uh, and, you know, what were you there and why were you there? Uh, I was, I went to Liberia. Uh, I got a commission to do like a master plan of a kind of a big kind of community thing and more of like a kind of sketch, sketch through stuff. Uh, and then uh, Gabon, I went in grad school. We had a, our studio was based there. And so we went down there for a week to Libreville. Um, but it's just like the, the urban centers, right. Especially on, on, I know Western Africa better, but like it, it just such interesting typologies and forms that, that have been developed that, that are so interesting of like taking, taking references from different places, but then it's so totally of that place and, and just like he never really publicized much, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, the other thing that, you know, that's, that's interesting. You've been to those two countries because, you know, um, Almost everyone goes to South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, maybe Egypt and Morocco. Mm -hmm. Those are the five most popular. Um, and they're all beautiful. But you know, the, seeing these other indigenous, like when we were in Chad, we were, we, we were there for almost five weeks. And you're drifting over the Sahara Desert, which is bigger than the United States. And, you know, you see these nomadic, you know, Tuaregs and tool book people just in the middle of nowhere, uh, it just walking across the desert with nothing in sight is just wild. You know, it's fascinating to me. And then the stars in the Southern Hemisphere are totally different. And you're camping out, looking up at, mm. you know, no one in the world has a clue where you are. And I like that feeling. Yeah. So next, next trip for me is um, Susan and I are taking our boys. Uh, we're spending uh, the month of February next year in uh, remote Patagonia and Chile, mm. turning to northern Bolivia to go back to the Guayuni salt flats. Um, so we'll be gone for a month then. It, but yeah, something really draws you to those expanses of sand, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I like, you know, I'm more drawn to desert landscapes than I am of alpine landscapes, but now, Patagonia, if you haven't been to Chile and Argentina, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it seems, seems like it. I, I haven't been, but but it's it's also something about, like, you, like you're saying about your architecture of trying to, like, get as minimal of a material palette as possible or color palette, but then thinking about texture. And it's like, that's totally what I think of it about a desert, you know, where you have this kind of sameness, at least in, like, an extreme desert. But then that 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 really emphasizes the textures. 
uh, the way the light and the shadow play across the material. Like, mm-hmm. like as I was talking about this, this project in Chicago, near Chicago, uh, it's going to be incredible. Um, these clients are very enlightened. They're very studied in architecture. Uh, we beat out Rick Joy, Olson Kundig, Nates mm. Massey, Marlon Blackwell is a friend of mine. Wow. Uh, they they went to some really good firms, um, and they just really kind of subscribe to how we talk about work and our work itself, and I think uh, you know our, our process. So uh, we feel really good about this one. Yeah, that's cool. I I just yeah. It's it's encouraging to hear, you know, of just that idea of just just continue to do good work and have patience and and if you if you do those things and do it right, then good things come. Uh, yeah. And how old are you? I am thirty. I'm uh, what am I? Thirty eight. All right. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think I told you I I finished school at thirty and then I um started the studio be at thirty four, and um. I would say that, you know, by the time I was like 44, I felt pretty good. But I, I always tell young architects, I said, I think it takes 10 years out of school before you really know what you're doing. And, you know, um, uh, you know, between codes, permits, HOAs, neighbors, um, budgets, schedules, I mean, it's such a complicated profession. Uh, and, you know, and then you're dealing with the dreams of your clients and sometimes the limitations of, you know, the, the HOAs and, and budgets. And that's why in many, in many ways, if I could do it all over again, I'd probably still be an architect, but I would probably be a, a sculptor, you know, mm-hmm. where I don't have anyone tell me what you can and can't do. And if you, if you don't like it, you know, I, I don't care. Um, but, you know, being a, being a fine artist where you don't really have any handcuffs or restraints to me would be, a great way to live. But I, I must say that at this point in my career and the work we're doing here at Studio B, I've acquired a, a highly talented team, mm-hmm. people I respect, uh, and we're we're committed to this mission of, of design excellence and all we do. And um, it's it's really proven to, to work really well. And like I said, you know, when when clients come to us now, they usually say, you know, we're not really talking to anyone else. We, we just want to work with you. Um, and we usually, you know, when we talk about our fees, they usually don't have a problem with it, you know, because they know what they're going to get. And they're, right. and clients who come to us, you know, are, are sophisticated and elevated, and they know it takes a lot of work to do this. You know, more, many of our clients have built before, so they, they know what to expect, you know, um, that's one of the tricky things about you at your age. I mean, you're probably attracting clients who don't, don't really, you know, haven't done it before. They're talking to five other firms. Um, your fees are probably, you know, reasonable at your age because, you know, you don't have a lot of overhead and, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get a portfolio of work built, but it, it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it, it was interesting because I, I'm interested by your experience where you started from, you know, fairly early in your career and, and my wife and I graduated in, in, uh, Oh nine. Uh, and my uncle gave us a, my vegetarian doctor uncle gave us a commission to design a hot dog restaurant in Kansas when we were 23. And so that's where we're in our studio apartment 
and not knowing anything, but designed and like got this building built and then kind of did more projects with him. And so we started a firm so early and then I, and then she went back to grad school. I went to grad school. We started working for firms and then I started a firm twice again since then. But it's, it's always, you know, I have that sort of always that insecurity of like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I didn't spend 10 years at a firm. Like, you know, I, I just jumped from firm to firm to firm. And, um, but it, it takes that, that confidence and that inner strength, I guess, to, to not kind of lean on 15 years of working for somebody else or something and, and just starting the firm. And, and now it's like, yeah, just start a firm, you know, it's, but. Well, as you said early on, you know, to start a firm, you either have to, you know, have someone who really believes in you, which is typically a family member mm -hmm. or, you know, a, a wealthy uncle or something like that, you know, um, you know, right out of school anyway. Well, a lot of my friends at RISD were, were, were very wealthy kids. And, you know, a lot of them got commissions from family people right, right off the bat. I mean, I, I wasn't one of those guys. Um, I, I was one of the few that actually put myself through school, took out loans, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I think today RISD is 60000 a year, and that's just for tuition. It's nuts. It's like Harvard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, by the way, I, you know, two years into my practice, I applied and got into the MR2 program at, at the GSD. And uh, Jorge, uh, you know, Silvetti was my my sponsor. And, um, and then at the time, you know, the woman I was dating got pregnant. So uh, the timing didn't work. And, you know, and I reapplied the next year, got in again. And then I started getting some great projects. So timing wise, it didn't work out, but it doesn't make it didn't make a difference because the trajectory of the firm has done well. And you know, having that additional master's degree probably wouldn't have made a difference, but uh, I think the, the work speaks for itself these days. So, This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day -day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S., so wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.